KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Kitisa, Parashat Parah, Yutet Adar, Tafshin Ein. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef and Chaim Shmuel. And I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Over the events of the past few weeks, looking to this week's Parashat Shavuah, both the Parashat Shavuah itself, Kitisa, which deals largely with Chet HaEgel, the Tshuva process, also Parashat Para, which, according to Chazal, is a Kapara for Chet HaEgel, and also, as I said, the events of the past few weeks have sent uh, many of us back to looking at the Parashat of David and Batsheva, I want to start from a famous expression here in Israel, which I believe predated the disengagement, expulsion, whatever you call it, from Gush Katif, from Aza. Deeper in uh, Israeli politics, the expression is Lonishkach Velonislach. We will not forget, we will not forgive. And dare I say that this is an extremely non-Jewish expression. Loni slach is not something that is truly part of our lexicon. Of course, we are not in a position to forgive for things that weren't done to us, and This relates to things that have to do with the Shoah. It's not people, the Jewish people's right to forgive, forget, pardon me. Forgiveness is something that can be given by the person who is sinned towards. Forgiveness can be given by God. But it's a, it's something that comes out of a strong emotion of someone who feels terribly hurt. But from that phrase, lo nishkach, is certainly a correct phrase. The... ability to forgive something does not and should not go hand in hand with the ability to forget something. Perhaps one of the more famous expressions of that is in our Parsha this week, when God has gone through some sort of process of forgiveness vis-a-vis Am Yisrael, vis-a-vis Chet HaEgel. He states, Uviyom pokti ufakhalati alehem chatatam. I won't destroy them. Not only does God not destroy them, He even accepts Moshe's prayers to continue being... Pardon me. It's the hour of the morning. To continue being in direct contact with the Jewish people. But, In the day that I will choose to remember, I will punish them for their sin. This is a very loose translation. 
I'll remember their sin. The sin has not gone away. The sin is still there, and there has to be reckoning for the sin. When the Rambam writes out Hilchot Shuva, it's part of Hilchot Shuva. It's part of the understanding of the concept of Shuva that there is a reckoning for the sin. There are certain sins that are very light sins that can be forgiven with Shuva alone, and there are some sins that Shuva and Yom Kippur are necessary for full absolution. There are sins that necessitate some sort of reckoning, some sort of punishment. This is not a question of vengeance. This is not a question of punishment in this in the in the sense of that you need to be punished, but in the sense that for something to truly change, if something of such a great magnitude, there needs to be a reckoning. Those who have written that David HaMelech we are able to continue dealing with David HaMelech and continue re- relating to David HaMelech as a looked up to character despite the sin of David and Bathsheba and Uriah Chiti often point to his response to Natan of Chatati La Hashem he admits his sin. But sometimes, and in today's society, admitting to something is cheap. And today, somehow taking responsibility and saying, I made a mistake, is easy to say, and and that's it. If somebody admits their sin and and everything is okay. And the answer is, is that David went through a terrible series of events in the aftermath of the sin. And that explains where God's ability to forgive comes from. The, the tshuva process is completed not only with David saying Chatati Lashem, though it is an, a, the most basic step, if there's no Chatati Lashem, there's no room for the Chuba process to continue. But David subsequently loses his son. David loses that baby, that's, that's perhaps one thing, the baby that came out of that, that relationship with Bathsheba. David then loses his son Amnon at the hands of his other son Avshalom. His daughter Tamar is raped by his son Amnon. From here it it only goes downhill. And here is where it becomes more substantial. Because his son Avshalom rebels against him and almost takes the throne out of his hands. And this here is already more significant. Because Rav Meidan in his book about Chet David and Bathsheba, has correctly pointed out that the severity of the sin of David and Bathsheba is not in the adulterous nature of the relationship with Bathsheba. Whatever one chooses for their solution as to why it was or wasn't as adulterous as it seems, that wasn't the point. The point was David usurping his 
role as a king to get the woman he was interested in and destroy the man that was in his way. This was a much more dangerous level of sin than mere adultery because he used the throne for his advantages, for his personal gain. Which involved somewhat adulterous relationship depending on what different opinions are out there and I'm not addressing that point right now. And using his his power as a king is a much more severe sin than quote-unquote mere adultery because mere adultery we can all do. But only the king can use his power that he was given to lead the people against the people themselves. And in this sense, whereas some of David's losses, the rape of his daughter, the the killing of his son, Amnon, the loss of the, the baby, were personal losses, which addressed perhaps the personal layers of the sin, the fact that David's son Avshalom rebels against him successfully, almost, the fact that Avshalom publicly humiliates his father by having relations with his father's concubines, these were paying a national price for the national sin that he committed. The fact that Avshalom is able to convince the people that he can give them a fair trial, he can give them justice, he can become close to them, and he could convince them that there is no one who will be able to listen to you in the king's court. There's no explicit mentioning of this. There's no explicit mentioning in Sefer Shmuel that the story of David and Bathsheba became public in the time of David. It's not hard to imagine that in these few words that the Tanakh quotes, that Avshalom was able to say to the people who came, Look what the king does to his subjects. Look how the king manipulates things for his own good. He's going to listen to your problems. Come to me. And as the Tanakh says, he hugged them, he kissed them, he made them feel close. David paid for his actions in this rebellion of Avshalom. Not only in the sense, again, of vengeance, but the results of his actions. He lost the trust of the people. And that was at the source of Avshalom's initial success. Now again, 
The question that comes up in this context is what allows us to look into read David's Tehillim and uh, and take inspiration from it, take solace in it at times. And we're talking about someone who's involved in this sin. Some of the some of the the Tehillim even relate to the sin. Talk to David. Talk David expresses himself as a sinner. I think here we have to come back to the principle of tshuva and understand that tshuva has to be built into a system where man is prone to failures. Because God didn't create a world in which he just wanted to destroy it. God created a world in which he wanted to lead people in the right direction. And leading people in the right direction is facing people, and people have failings. And if they fail, there has to be a way of correcting that f- those failings. So there has to be room for tshuva. But, there has to be room for another principle. And that is, that not all, of a, not all people's failings necessarily have to shed a light on all areas of their personality. And this is a problematic statement and a loaded statement. And I don't know the borders of the statement. Clearly, we don't see a mafia person who leads through and through an immoral life as someone who we will look to for inspiration. But a person's goodness and morality can shine through in other areas of their life. And things have to be tested perhaps on an individual basis. Perhaps there is no statement that says, an overarching statement that says, where where do we draw the line? Where do we say, this is okay, this is not okay. This person is rotten through and through. This person has dark places in their personality, but there's something good that's left behind that is worthwhile learning from. Perhaps Sefer Tilim speaks for itself. Perhaps Sefer Tilim speaks for itself when we can read it in a vacuum. And that's why we know it's good regardless of our feelings towards the author. Clearly, much of this thinking comes in the aftermath of the events of the past few weeks that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. But there is one more statement that I want to say in, in, in hesitation. And that is, yes, there is tshuva. And yes, we have a concept of Heve Dan Kol Adam And yes, we have a concept that if one sees a tzaddik who's sitting at night, be sure that he has done tshuva in the morning. But I do not believe that that absolves us of response, public responsibility towards others. Can I believe in an individual that they made, did sincere tshuva and they will not return to their sin again? Yes. 
does that belief in that individual allow me as a public person, as a public figure, to not warn others of the dangers that they face? I think the answer is absolutely not. In the case of a person who poses a danger to the public, I have to cut the the case into two. I can believe in the sincerity of the tshuva, if there is a tshuva, I can believe that they won't return to this if there is a tshuva process, which, for the record, in the case that's with us right now, at least publicly, there's only been denial of any wrongdoings. But again, in theory, we can believe a person's sincerity in doing tshuva, we can understand that there was a failing and we can understand that there's much good about their personality, there's much good about them, there's much good about their teachings, as we've said about David HaMelech. But we might need to limit them because the danger that they pose to others doesn't necessarily demand that I can absolve them of everything. Lonishkach, we do believe in. Something has happened here. There was a sin. And we have a responsibility towards other people. My obligation to be done Adam Lakafskut and believe in his ability to do tshuva and his sincerity in tshuva cannot, in my opinion, allow me to look blindly to what's happened, to forget about it as it happened, and expose other people to danger. As a public figure... I have no right to endanger other people because of my belief that this person has done tshuva. Perhaps only God has that ability to see what is going on. As a public figure, I have to both accept the ability of the person to do tshuva on an individual level, but I also have to take responsibility for the well-being of others. And I have to say, I don't know where this person is, if they have actually accomplished their tshuva, have they not accomplished their tshuva, and therefore I have to warn others of the dangers that face them, because I have a responsibility to others as well. Once again, a complex worldview that demands of us two opposing things when we're dealing with the person to believe in their ability to do tshuva, to be sincere, to be done on the kafzchut, but when we're de- dealing with the public, give them the fairness of a fair warning, of realizing the dangers that face them, and we have to live with both of these opposing factors together. Thoughts about Parshat Kitisa and about the present. Shabbat Shalom. Parshat Kitisa. Obviously, a parasha with many, many halachot. And two, somewhat unusual or lesser known. At the beginning of the parasha, we have parashat Shabbat. And the pasuk says, Pasuk Yudbet. Pasuk Yudgimah. Ve'ata, daber el b'nei Yisraelimu. 
אחת שבתותיי תשמור, כי אות היא ביני וביניכם לדורותיכם, לדעת כי אני אדוני מקדישכם. God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, speak to the Jews, speak to B'nai Israel, and say to them, that you should know that I am God who sanctifies you. The Gemara in Shabbat, Daf Yud Amud Bet, apparently is perplexed. God gave us Shabbat so that we should know that God sanctifies us. It's to a certain extent circular. By giving us Shabbat, God has sanctified us. What does it mean that you should know that God sanctifies you? So the Gemara learns that it's important to know, and God wishes us to know, and therefore makes the following conclusions. Following conclusion. Amar Rabbi Chama Bargur Yamarav. Anyone who gives, if you give a present to your fellow, to your friend, you should inform him that you're doing so. Rashi explains, The God is giving a gift to the Jewish people. For Mashi, it's Mashi is given the gift of Kedusha. But for the next line, the Gemara, it's the gift of Shabbat. Maybe it's the same thing. But it's not merely that God gives us Shabbat. He also wishes to inform us that He's giving us Shabbat. Because it's important that a person be made aware that he's receiving a gift from somebody else. Now, why is it important? The Gemara doesn't say. So Mashi gives sort of like two different answers. Rashi writes as follows, Sarich lahudio, you have to inform your friend that you're giving him a gift. Matan ploni etenach. You should say, I'm about to give you, I'm going to give you a gift. Vezeu derech kavod. This shows respect for the other person. Deshema yidbayesh lekavla, mitoch kach mitratzim bidvarim veinau bosh badava. Interesting, Rashi's sensitivity. Rashi says that people don't want to accept gifts. A person might be embarrassed or shamed to receive a gift. And by telling him you're going to do it, in other words, by discussing it with him, so you make it more palatable. You can explain to him, mitratzim bidvarim, he, his, his guilt or his shame is assuaged, and therefore he will receive it. Ve'ino bosh badava. Ve'chein imnat na bebeito. Rashi says, what about suppose you don't give it to him in his hands, that he can, you know, feel bad. You left it for him, you mailed it to him. You leave the gift on the table. Shelo miyadiyato. He doesn't know he's getting it. Tzarech lodiyo. You have to tell him. Shemiyado ba'alo. Shemitoch kach yehei ohavo. Well, these are two different, very different reasons. One is if you're handing it to him, of course he knows you're giving it to him. You should still tell him. It's important to speak about it, not really give it to him. So it's not to inform him of facts he wouldn't know. But you should give it in a manner that makes it easy to receive. And by speaking about it, you make it easy for a person to receive. Second reason is you should actually inform him what he what doesn't otherwise know. Why? Uh, you don't give gifts for fun. The gift has the potential. You might be giving it for all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're required to do it. Maybe it's acceptable. Maybe it's conventional. It's a bar mitzvah. You have to give gifts. The Rashi points out, but gifts between people increases the love between people. Sharing, gift giving, isn't merely a social convention which we're stuck with. It's a very positive thing. It creates a bond between people. And he has to know. You have to tell him that you gave it to him for to do that. And it's a shame to waste the opportunity by giving him a gift without, without telling him.
So actually there's two different reasons. One is to make, well actually they're connected to the ultimate result. One is to make it easy for him to receive. And two is to achieve the, the desired result. That through this gift, the bond between people should become closer. Interestingly enough, it's learned from a pasuk between God and man. That God says, I'm giving Shabbat to the Jews. Tell them I'm giving them Shabbat because it's important they should know that I'm giving them Shabbat. So if we apply the reasons given by Rashi, first one, maybe, I don't know, sounds a little far-fetched, but when God gives mitzvot to the Jews or gives a present to the Jews, so for one reason or another, there might be more reasons than meet the eye, the Jew doesn't want to receive this present from the hand of God. It makes him uncomfortable. And you explain it. Pasuk explains to us a conversation creates the verbal bond between them. It's easier in that context than also give the gift. Second reason I think is more relevant. What God gives us, the mitzvot, Shabbat, there is a reason, but there's also an added, at least, an additional result. These mitzvot create a bond between us. And then you have to know who you're getting it from. So God says to the Jews, that's not just that they have to observe Shabbat. They should understand that Shabbat is a gift. And not just that they should value Shabbat, that they should value God who gave the gift. Okay, Talfus points out something which some of you undoubtedly thought of, that this halacha in the Grand Shabbat appears to be diametrically in opposition to a well-known halacha that says when you give stakaya, you should give beseta, matan beseta. If you possibly can, you should give tzedakah to a poor person without him knowing who gave it to him. Those says the big difference between a matana and tzedakah. A gift here is not a gift of tzedakah. It's a gift of love. It also says, A gift of friendship. He should know that who gives it to him so that the friendship should be achieved. Those says, apparently he's concentrating on the second reason the Rashi gives uh, because there is no shame in receiving a gift from your friend. If he gives staka, he receives the staka is, is embarrassed that he needs to receive it. The dependency created by giving staka has a negative social ramification. As Matan de Sefer Pasuk Mishlei says it's better to give secretly without him knowing. In other words, you could say that any gift giving creates dependency, but it creates mutual dependency. That's Rashi's point. It's Ava Benehem. Sure, I receive the gift from you, but in some sense, first of all, I return the gift. Secondly, if I don't return the gift, but receiving a gift from you doesn't make me dependent on you. It, your expression of love, my expression of love, it creates a bond between people. But accepting staka is from one who has to one who does not have. It's from the rich to the poor. That creates dependency. And dependency is very unpleasant for people, rightly so. A person is and should be embarrassed to receive tzedakah. And therefore, one should, as much as possible, eliminate that feeling of dependency and consequent embarrassment. And matan seita giving secretly, is one way to achieve that. Okay? So here again we have something which the Chachamim learned from the way that God acts, so you should act. If God does it, it means it's a good thing and you should try to emulate. Of course, it's the general mitzvah that says you should emulate God in as many ways as possible. So this is 
one of the more specific examples of just as God informed the Jews before He gave them Shabbat, He was giving them Shabbat, so everyone should inform if you're giving a gift, you should inform the person that you're giving, to whom you're giving the gift that you are, that you are doing so. One other uh, interesting point about a different pasuk, Pashat Kitisa, has the story of the Egel, and Moshe Rabbeinu, when he first comes back and destroys the Egel, also um, pleads with God, and he asks that God should go with the Jews, should, should maintain his presence in the Jewish people. And then God answers, Vayumar panai yeilechu vanichotilach. Pshat says that God accedes to Moshe Rabbeinu's request. My, I will go with you. Panai yeilechu, my face will go, means I will go with you. And I will go with you by looking at you, by being close to you. That's apparently what the words panai means. Vanichotilach, and I will lead you. So the Gemara in Brachot has a different understanding of the Pasuk and therefore can learn a particular lesson from this. The Gemara in Brachot of Zion says, Ein maratzin lo le'adam, Ein maratzin lo le'adam, Shat ka'aso. Tekhtiv panai yeleichu vahanichoti lach. What does it mean, Panay My face will go, and I will lead you. Amar Kashvachal Moshe, Hamtengli Atshe Yavru Panim Shalzam, Vaniyachlach. Panay means my face will go away, and then I will lead you, and then, or I will allow you, Vaniyachlach. Then I will um, accede to your request. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I have to change my face. What does that mean? Uh, it means that God was angry. Peshat ka'asa. Obviously, speaking about God, you're talking about a metaphor. But nonetheless, you could learn a lesson from that. Ein martzin lo adam peshat ka'asa. You should not try to apologize, to, to talk your way out or in to somebody. Peshat ka'asa. When the Anger is still hot. And so Moshe Rabbeinu prayed to God. God said to him, come back later. Not because God was so angry that he didn't want to accede. It was improper to have this discussion now. So but God, it's very difficult to explain. But uh, there's a Mishnah in a vote which says the same thing. But the Mishnah in a vote says it's Simply, al do not uh, mollify your friend b'shat kasa. Ben this says, explains the reason. Ben Hasid, the great medieval moralist and sage, or Ben of Gironde, Gironde today. Ben says, shali deze yavol amad varim shenem uganim ki yosif kasa kasa. Ben says, obviously it doesn't apply to God, but applies to people. If you try to mollify a person when he's so angry, not only won't you succeed, you'll make it worse. Your mouth, he will answer you in an improper manner. Because it's actually provocative to apologize to somebody when he's angry. Seems, it's hard to remember this. 
Because we want to be, we want to be besedded. We want to, we want to apologize. We want to get it off our back still. But the apology of Elfa makes it worse until he becomes rational, until he calms down. But Bishat Kasoy said to him, don't get so angry. It's okay, you know, think twice. Makes him more angry. And then, he'll say things which are inappropriate. And therefore, it's not just a bad idea. The way Rabbi Yon explains it, doesn't mean, it doesn't pay, it won't work. It means it's also. It's kind of lifnei eva. When somebody is angry, you should not provoke him more because it will make it worse. And provoking includes provocation in the depth of a psychological understanding of Chazal and Rabbi Yonah. It's provocative to try to be nice. His mind can't handle it. There is a general principle. It's quoted by the Bible in Chodayot based on a pair of psukim and mishlei. The Bamam says, Ohev Ohev Shalom Verodev Shalom. You have to not just love peace, but also pursue peace. What does that mean? It means you have to think. If you see that you can say something which will be acceptable, it will sink into the person you're talking to, then say it. But if you know your words are not going to work, it's better to be quiet. Because Vodev Shalom, your goal is not to say the right things, but your goal is in fact to achieve peace, to, malif- to really malify. Ketzad, Ramam says, Lo yeratzet chavero b'shat kasal. Then Ramam quotes our Gemara as an example of not to say something which won't be heard. He doesn't quite have the Rabbeinu Yonah thing that will make it worse. He'll say, he'll say things that he'll regret. But in any event, it will make it better. And therefore it's not Vodev Shalom. Uh, until his spirit achieves some sort of rest. Ram has another example which some um, of and I think people very often don't remember from good intentions, but they don't follow it. And psychologically, the Ramam is right. You should not try to console someone when his grief is still fresh, how fresh? The person is not buried yet. Person, his spirit is so disturbed until he, because he has to bury the person. Until he gets it off his mind, he can't listen to you. He's not beginning to mourn yet, and you're already consoling him. Ramam throws that in together with Lo et b'shat b'shat kasal. All this is learned from. That's all for today. Shabbat Shalom Umevorach.